Well, this is wonderful. You know why we're here? We're coming to do book by book a series of Bible studies, and today what we're going to do is 1 Peter. I hope you've got a Bible with you. There are three of us here who are going to share in the leadership of this Bible study, and we are Richard Bewes. I'm going to be your genial host and compare in a way. Then uh, Don Carson, who's Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, but Canada born, just flown in from uh, Chicago today. It's nice to be in, here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Don, and you're just in time for the Bible study. And then my colleague, Paul Blackham, Dr. Paul Blackham, Lancashire-born, really, but ministering and teaching and preaching right here in London. So it's going to be one Peter that we're doing, and we'll do the first section today. And let's take the first 12 verses is enough for the first uh, little series of... Um, studies, which is to do with sufferings and then glory as well, combined. Let me read a bit. Have you got the Bible with you? You've got the, all those 12 verses there, but I'm going to read from verse 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Trials, people suffering. What are we really on about in this first uh, of the series. Well, I'd like to start off with Don. Don Carson, why did Peter write this letter? Judging from the contents of the letter, it's addressed to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire who are facing the beginnings of serious opposition, persecution, sometimes insult, something more brutal, and who are perhaps tempted to be a bit discouraged or to lower the flame of their Christian devotion or the like. And, and uh, Peter, by contrast, wants to say, in effect, don't you understand? You're called to this, but this isn't an end. This is part of the way to glory. If we had to summarize a lot of his argument, we might perhaps refer to chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Uh, there Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then uh, he goes on to talk about uh, being That's insulted and so forth. almost the sort of key sentence, pretty much, of the book, you could almost regard it like that. It's a theme that comes up again and again and yeah. again, that's right. And it's not just um, from Peter, too. The same sort of thing is found elsewhere in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, here is a passage from Paul in the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians. He writes, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And uh, I suppose in an age where there are a lot of voices that try to push us toward... Um, the impression that Christianity should all be about happiness and contentment and peace. It's very important to underline the New Testament uh, emphasis on suffering as part of the total package, but culminating nevertheless in glory still to be revealed, which is after all the pattern of Jesus himself who suffered and then was vindicated. Indeed. 
actually, I suppose we must say that this is very much addressed to all sorts of people today. I mean, if we think of people who are suffering now in camps, situations, and some of them may be sharing in this uh, study right now. And so when uh, Peter says to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout these various places, um, we could say, yeah, there are people now sharing in this study, they themselves are homeless or scattered or suffering in one way or another. Not everybody. Plenty are not suffering in that kind of way. But nevertheless, as you say, it seems to be something of a, of a calling. Paul, can I come on to you for a moment? Again, we're still in the early sort of skirmishing of this um, study. Um, can I ask you, how does Peter address the letter then? Taking yeah. up that theme? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a powerful uh, address. He introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ to let him know the, his authority in that sense. But it is addressed, as we've seen, to a scattered group of people, which you'd imagine would be a, a, a down sort of intro. Hello, uh, I'm writing to a bunch of nobodies just scattered everywhere. But what he comes from, he says, who, the beginning of verse 2, have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So he backs it up from this eternal perspective. He locates these people geographically scattered, but in a theological sense, he says, ah, now you've been on the mind of the Trinity, the whole Trinity, for an awfully long time. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are working together for you to make something of you. You see, that's lovely in verse 2. 1 Peter 1 verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, to do the sanctifying work of the Spirit, in obedience to Jesus Christ. Christ. The whole trinity uh, surrounding this group of scattered, apparently nobodies, but after you've read the, the address, you think, oh no, I'm part of something, something that is beyond my imagining. So it's an amazing address for a letter. So they're scattered, but they are also elect. They have been, yeah. They're part of the chosen. Yeah. Which, <coughs> excuse me, which is very wonderful indeed. Well, I think then what I would must ask then is an obvious question. If this letter is written to Christians under attack, Don Carson, why does Peter begin with praise here in verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why start with praise? The answer is bound up in what Peter is telling them to praise God for. Um, he's not saying, praise God because you're suffering. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then gives the reasons. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. Now, hope for us in English um, has to do with looking forward to something that is intrinsically uncertain. Um, I hope to, 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 to travel to uh, another city on such and such a date, but something might come up and I might not be able to do it. Uh, but hope in the New Testament has this notion of forward anticipation without any of the doubt necessarily involved. So the Bible can speak of certain hope. And what, what this passage is saying is that because of the new birth that we've received, we have a certain anticipation of glory that is still to come, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You, you might be going through some pretty nasty times now, but the ultimate long-range expectation you've got, secured already by God's work in Christ, secured in your own personal experience by the new birth, is, is, is an eternal perspective that, that, that far outstrips any of the kind of 
suffering that you may be going through right now. And for that, God is to be praised. And then as he works through all of the things to be, uh, to be thankful for, um, the, the trials are mentioned almost by way of concession. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer Greek yes. in all kinds of trials, but nevertheless, even now, already we rejoice in Christ and we love him even though we don't see him, verse 8 and so on. What Peter is doing is implanting in Christian minds an eternal perspective. I don't think that Christians who are going through suffering um, are going to be really stable in their faith unless they have this eternal perspective and are pressing on um, with eternity's values in view. It's, what, it's the sort of thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to lay up treasure in heaven. And if that's where our real treasure is, that's where our heart will go, and it will take us through these, uh, the, the, these, these really difficult times. Which must be happening in many parts of the world at this moment. The, I, I was going to say the world's uh, best demographer for Christian demographer, a chap called David Barrett, says there are about 160,000 Christian martyrs a year at the moment. And uh, just in the last few weeks, about 8,000 Christians have been killed in northern Indonesia. And uh, the Karel peoples um, in, in Burma are facing overt persecution. You think of what's going on in southern Sudan, and on and on. Besides the lower grade thing of insults and uh, economic yeah. disadvantage mm -hmm. for being Christians and so on in countless parts of the world, this is a brutal world. Mm -hmm. This is reality, friends. And it's very helpful that we have this wonderful letter. Uh, so, Paul, when people suffer, Quite often, they will think it's, it's, it's pointless what's happening at the moment. Yeah. Why should this be happening to me? And uh, how is it that Peter can turn that around and answer that predicament? Well, it's true that the dominant philosophy that people, at least in the Western world, combat, or that, that governs people, is the idea, well, everything is just random and it just happens and that's it. So you suffer, that's just life, it's brutal, there's nothing to it, it's pointless. So that you suffer, it's just a bitter thing, completely bitter. I think most people feel that and that all of life is like that. But he, amazingly from in verse seven there in chapter one, after he said, oh, you've got to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that his immediate opening statement about suffering is a purpose statement. Suffering has come with a purpose. Immediately you think, well, what purpose could possibly be served by this awful suffering that just seems brutal and meaningless? Verse and then he, 7. From verse 7. And then he explains what will happen. Your faith is actually of greater worth than gold. That you think, well, gold's fantastic. I mean, he says, oh no, even gold can perish. But faith real, the real faith that is focused on Jesus Christ mm. cannot. And that these sufferings, what will they do? They'll help you to see the true value of things. There's a purpose to them. They refine you. They, you come through. And you, initially you might think, oh, well, you know, the things that are important in my life are money or a good place to live or something. Even as a Christian, you might think those are the really key mm. things that give me security. Mm. And then you suffer and you discover, no, those are not the things that are really going to last to eternity. You then realize the things that are going to be forever is this, this living hope, this trust yeah. in Jesus Christ. I remember hearing um, a Ugandan Christian leader called Festo Kavengeri, who's now died, but he was a, a great uh, protagonist for the faith in Uganda at the time of great difficulties there. He was chased out of the country at one point, and he described it once as suffering as the polishing of the saints 
which for a person who was suffering was a, a wonderful statement to be able mm. to make at all, I think. But I'm sure that he would have had a verse like this in mind. Don, if your sufferings in the body, that is to say, uh, are, are destroying your body, wouldn't it be a, a better encouragement, really, for Peter to talk about the salvation of the body rather than about the salvation of the soul? He actually does mention the soul, of course, in, in verse 9, but it's worth reading the, the verse before as well, uh, 8 and 9 together. Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, the first thing to, to say is that uh, souls does not always refer to simply the uh, the immaterial part of you, though it includes that. It, it means the, the salvation of your whole person. It's looking forward to the end, the consummation that has to do with uh, the, the culminating salvation, that is, a resurrection body, uh, the triumph of everything. And in the light of all of this, in the light of the new heaven and the new earth still to come, therefore already we experience inexpressible joy in the light of what is to come. So Christians, when they face this sort of uh, uh, suffering, don't, don't say any effect. Um, oh, this is wonderful. I, I love being hit. I'm basically a kind of spiritual masochist. But they are saying uh, there is honor in this. This is the direction Jesus went, and it's a mark of, of purification, mark of anticipation. It's, it's a sign that we're heading toward this ultimate salvation, the salvation of our whole beings in Christ Jesus, which is here summarized the salvation of our souls. One remembers what the apostles said in the early part of Acts, when they were first being beaten up, uh, it says, then they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to yeah. suffer for the name. Yes. There was joy. That's very, very powerful. Actually, there's several things here. There's a revelation, really, to read this. And the word about the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last yes. time, verse 5. And uh, when Jesus Christ is revealed, end of verse 7, and then it talks about here, Paul Blackham, about the, uh, the Old Testament saints, the prophets, who are looking ahead and things are being revealed to them. Would you like to just elaborate on that before we close this study? Yeah, it's what Peter does is instead of saying, well, this is a brand new product, straight out, brand new, never before tried before, he isn't saying that. He's saying, actually, if you read the Old Testament, he doesn't get into all the minutiae of all the different things that were said to the Old Testament saints by revelation. He just cuts to the big central thing. He said, what were they looking forward to? How were they able to go through all the sufferings, exiles, all the sufferings that they had? They looked forward to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And he's really going to say, now they were absolutely vindicated in that. When they, and, we, and he's saying, you can see that. You've got a tremendous encouragement to look back and say they were looking forward to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were followed. It sustained them. They were vindicated. And they themselves knew that that was what they were doing, looking forward to the future, not keeping their attention fixed on their immediate social and political circumstances. The things that were revealed to them were about that, the future, the forward-looking faith. Mm, Paul, that's brilliant. And that is surely a truth that stands so much of what people's thoughts are about suffering on their little head. I'd like to end off with uh, verse 7 again. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes uh, may be proved genuine. I've been with hundreds of people, you know, as a clergyman, on their deathbed, tried to comfort them. Indeed, Paul Blackham and I were speaking with uh, a lady from Nigeria who was dying. And what we did was we sang to her. We sang 
that old song from George Beverly Shea, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. As we wind up our little study, surely the emphasis of this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 is for all of us and for you. Thanks for sharing.